0: Deepen your practice, explore your soul, and expand your consciousness in the lap of the Himalayas, the birthplace of yoga with yogis from around the world. Learn more at internationalyogafestival.org. From Spirituality
1: and Health Magazine, this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Naomi Shihab Nye, an award-winning poet, teacher, and National Book Award finalist. Naomi has written and edited more than 30 books. Her newest book, due out in February, is Voices in the Air, Poetry for Listeners. It's a collection of almost 100 original poems written in honor of the artists, poets, writers, historical figures, ordinary folks, and diverse luminaries, past and present, who have inspired her. You can read an excerpt from the book in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Naomi, welcome to Essential Conversations.
2: Thank you. It's such an honor to be here.
1: Well, it is my pleasure. I've I love your work. Um, I have to admit that I, I am not in any way a poetry aficionado. So when I see when I see line breaks, I get nervous. <laughs> no, I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's well, maybe I'm not kidding. I want to start with uh, something you said at a lecture you gave in Boston at at, uh, the WGBH forum. I don't know when it was, but I'll remind you what you said, and I have actually a couple things about it. But you said in that talk, now I'm quoting you, poetry has the power to carry us into a larger human experience that will be with us forever, when other kinds of language may be less satisfying. So even if you don't remember saying that, just work with that idea. How is poetry, how does poetry carry us into a larger human experience?
2: Well, I rather like that quote, and I hope I did say it somewhere. Uh, And I do believe that somehow the essential, since the word essential is part of this program's title, the essential quality of poetry is to convey something of meaning, clearly and without a lot of decorative extras, without any explanation, uh, with a kind of um, transformative directness, possibly, or a or a descriptive quality that enters into our spirit, our soul, and 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 carries us, transports us into another consciousness. And you know, when I think sometimes of how I felt as a seven-year-old child reading great American poets like Emily Dickinson or Langston Hughes, people I still read with such appreciation and respect, uh, I know that it was possible for a little child to feel that same sense of wonder in the sense that words were more interesting when they occurred in poems than when they simply occurred in conversation or um directive language and i think as a poet we're always trying to you know pair away the extras and find what is the the kernel the central pivot somehow of an experience the the muscle the gravity the the generating energy something that is very different from the kind of language of explanation.
1: I, I'm, I'm very interested in this notion of explanation, and you mentioned it twice. You said poetry is without explanation, and, and this other language, uh, use of language, is maybe heavily into explanation. There's an immediacy to poetic language that doesn't, and I'm, I'm, this is a question, even though it sounds like a statement, there's an immediacy to poetic language that doesn't leave you room to evade what's being said. Does that sound right to you?
2: I like that. And there's also a trust in possibilities of leaping, imaginative leaping, which I strongly believe um, human beings do when they think. When we're kind of walking around by ourselves thinking, uh, our mind is often leaping from one element to another. And I think poetry embraces that kind of a movement without feeling there has to be a linear explanatory tie or say, okay, now we, we went to ABC and now we're going to D, you know, poetry doesn't require that. It just trusts that someone else's mind might be able to leap as well. And for those of us who read and write poetry, there's just something so, so hopeful and so, um, Enticing about that kind of imaginative thinking and imaginative talking. I just spent today with a one year old, as I do frequently these days because I'm very lucky to have a one year old grandson. He's almost two. And I was thinking today how his language is still so um, it, it's it's so skeletal in a way. he He doesn't say many sentences. He's starting to put words together. And yet he understands everything. And I feel that he understands even a facial expression so well. I mean, much better than many adults would detect a facial expression. And I was thinking about that in relation to our conversation. Like, here I spent the entire day conversing with this person in one and two two word little sentences the way he speaks. And it was infinitely uh, successful. I mean, that's how we live right now together. And uh, I don't feel that uh, satisfied if I'm talking to an adult about politics, for example, these days. I might feel a sense of enormous frustration about how we're communicating. But with, this, with a child who is so tuned into um, noun and verb and little uh, nuances of tone uh something else happens and i do think it's related to poetry um my favorite poet william stafford used to say we're all poets when we're little children and some of us just try to keep up the habit Mm. and i i love that i think it's true
1: so i didn't realize you had an almost two-year-old grandson so my grandson turned two last december and uh, he also lives very close by, so I am with him a lot. So I understand what you're saying. I I want to connect it, and maybe this whole thing about language without explanation, to a fascination that you had, and maybe still have, with Zen Buddhism. Yes. I look at my grandson, sort of, I, I mean, obviously I'm being a little facetious here, but he's, he's sort of a... a uh, a Roshi, a Zen Master, you know, he sort of does something and then he does something else, and there's no there's nothing left over when he shifts from A to B.
2: absolutely That is so beautiful. i love I love that. and and the the pleasure and repetition and ritual, which is part of Zen Buddhism alongside the silence and the listening, the quietude, um, I feel that in my grandson as well that he has that that access.
1: So so do you think that poetry can bring an adult back to that in some way?
2: Oh, I do. I do think so. And I could say that my life working with so many people in the realm of poetry has definitely underscored the truth of that. Because so many people will say how poems give them something that no other kind of language gives them. Or they've been feeling so lonely inside language until they wrote a few lines that seemed like a poem today i i think i think we all have the aptitude for it and sometimes just need to be invited into that kind of language which resides in all of us
1: yeah I, I, what about resistance I, Now i'm thinking in terms of well well lots of different terms actually now that the, the word is out there that that we resist using language that doesn't allow us to hide behind explanation or we resist having an experience so deeply that there isn't anything left over. So again, my, my grandson is like dinosaurs and then it's raisins and there's no connection. There doesn't need to be a connection. He's done with the dinosaurs. Now we have to have raisins. So do you think people resist that kind of simplicity or yeah, let me leave it at that.
2: Well, I... I- I, th- I think we do, or I think, I think we have, the resistances are so many. And as we grow in our lives, we, we can make up all kinds of resistances to keep us away from meaningful experience. And I, I don't really know why human beings do that to themselves, um, why we're often denying the possibility of entering into a realm. You know, I often think I could go to a ballet tonight or the symphony I went a few nights ago or a jazz concert or a blues concert. Um, I could go to all kinds of things and I would not have any sense that I had to be an expert in order to um, receive a great deal of participatory pleasure from being there, you know, but many times I think people feel with with something like poetry, they have to be an expert, or they have to be trained, or, or they have to um, know a lot of definitions. And maybe that's, maybe that's sometimes due to how some of us, depending what generation we're in, were taught poetry. I know that many people came through school with a very didactic approach to poetry being offered them, not an experiential one, and not a pleasurable one, perhaps, but people who have had a chance to experience lines and silences and leaps of poetry. And, um, even if they could, could very honestly say, well, I didn't quite grasp that entire poem, but I loved it. I loved listening to it. Uh, I think that's a luckiness in language that we should, um, that we should share with, allow ourselves to share in. You know, I've always, Not- Yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, no, go ahead and finish your thought.
2: Poetry to me is one of the most portable arts. I've thought this since I was a child. And it's also one of the cheapest arts. I mean, I used to think like to to appreciate poetry, you just needed a few poems to read and think about and some blank paper to write on and think about. And uh, you didn't have to you know, have a lot of equipment to love a poem or to carry a poem with you. And um, in my own training with poetry as a child, I had a second grade teacher who was so passionate about poetry that she had us memorizing and writing and reading and um, never suggesting that anything was above our heads, had us bringing poems into class every week. It was Really, poetry was the center of her curriculum. And because of that basking in language of, you know, second grade, it was as if this would be with me forever. And um, it it didn't require a lot of equipment or a lot of expertise to take pleasure in it and to learn from it and to want to do it.
1: I I think probably it requires most uh, a love of language. I don't know, and that's not an expertise. That's just a, a love
2: of a love and a listening to to the to the language. You know, I think um, to listen without feeling we have to then explain what we just heard. There's a great poet, Charles Simic, who has said maybe one of the worst things that could happen for a poem is for it to be paraphrased in duller language, which is <laughs> often what people require children and students to do with poets poetry right. you know you heard this poem now tell me what it was about well what do you mean tell you what it was about it was language itself so that whole uh, obsession with you know paraphrasing is is a strange one around poetry
1: yeah well that brings us to the title of the new book or at least the i guess the subtitle poetry for listeners So the the importance of listening and that normally, this is me anyway, I think of poetry for readers. I mean, I'm reading the poem, but you have something else in mind, I think, in general, not just with with this book. So listening is the, if, if a love of language is what the writer needs, the poet needs.
0: Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly,
1: Quote, reader needs, the rece- the receiver of the poem needs.
2: Well, I, I, yes, I think so, but I think also the writer needs the skill of listening, listening to the language that's coming through you, that's in the air around you, listening to the bits and pieces of, of language that occur everywhere in the world, finding some that have particular sparkle or resonance for you at any given moment, and how to, how to how to sing them, how to put them together, and then carrying them with you. You know, I think one of the hopes for me and Voices in the Air, um, in a time where where we feel very frustrated with a lot of the voices we're hearing, um, and and I don't think I'm alone in feeling that, um, what are some of the voices we've heard throughout all these years that have sustained us and have inspired us and lifted us up and and, uh, invoking them again when we really need them? So I think that is um, kind of an attitude this book grew out of as well.
1: Sometimes I get the sense that that powerful poetry, when you hear it, is it like cleanses your mind of all the other stuff that you're hearing. You know, the, the, the news and the fake news and the not fake news and all of that. It's a cleansing kind of experience.
2: That's beautiful. Yes, it's very beautiful. I agree with you. And it brings you into kind of the room of the poem, whatever the images are, whatever the cadence of the language, whatever the metaphors or similes. Um, I've always loved, I think the word stanza comes from the Italian for room and that sense of, you know, being in the room of the poem and being held. I often feel when I read a poem that I'm cupped in that poem. You know, I'm just being held like in suspension with it. And you're right, it's a cleansing, it's a refreshment it's um it's a basking in language that uh, we can grow very very hungry for if we experience nothing but breaking news and you know chatter night and day
1: yeah chatter i mean that's that is what it is we have about we don't have we only have a few minutes left i want to shift gears a little bit i think just to sort of round out what people may may learn from you and about you from this short conversation. You you come with from an interesting background. So you're if, if I understand it right, you're Palestinian on your dad's side and German on your mother's side, so I guess Muslim on your dad's side is that fair to say and Lutheran on your mom's side.
2: Well, but but interestingly, both of my parents at the time of my birth were non practitioners of, of the religions they were raised in. And uh, they were very, they shared a, a commitment to ecumenical experience. I would say they were both very interested in religion, uh, in, in world religions. They were both seekers, searchers, very open minded. And um, I would say actually the religious tradition my mother came out of, Was more narrow, she felt, than my father's very Muslim family, who were open-hearted and warm, and uh, did not um, look askance when he told them, as as a boy, that he did not wish to practice their religion. He respected it, but he was not going to be a full-time practitioner. And uh, for my mother, that was not such a happy story when she told her parents that at the age of eighteen. that was not easily accepted by them.
1: Yeah, even the notion that you're, you know, Palestinian on one side and German on the other side—that's like saying about myself, I'm a salesman on my dad's side and a secretary on my mom's side. It's like meaningless. Just be, you know,
2: mixtures, right? We're all these unusual mixtures, and and I think what we make out of that mixture is—it's fascinating. I mean, how does anything?
1: So that was that was the question I I want to come to. So what have you made out of all of it? What how do you see your I mean, this is spirituality and health. So where where do you find yourself spiritually?
2: Well, I I do feel that I modeled on my parents. I had the I had the manifestation of open mindedness with both of my parents, despite the fact that they had come from different Places entirely in different traditions, but they were equally open-minded and curious, and students of religion. Um, my father would later become very interested in Christianity, and my mother in Hinduism, and and me in Buddhism. So it was sort of like the 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 room was open, and we we went to many kinds of um, settings where we studied and talked with people, and and of course I always felt also that the Jewish tradition was. Um, so close to i felt my jewish friends jewish poets i read and knew that was like a brother sister relationship with arabs and jews and my father certainly raised us to believe to believe that to be true despite whatever conflicts continue to exist in the sorrowful political realm so i modeled their open mindedness i was curious i became a religion major in college i was always reading about religious Traditions and spirituality, ways of spirituality. And um, I feel that, you know, I just, that was kind of the way I was raised up. I was lucky to come out of two very open minded people. And for me, poetry would become a sort of devotion itself because it involved so many of the aspects of religious practice, invocation, um, listening. Um, a sense of presence, a sense of connectedness to other people, uh, through poems, feeling you know connected to other times in history, other cultures, other voices. So I guess in some ways, um, being a poet became a kind of spirituality of its own
1: well, that's that's really interesting. And that's a perfect place to wrap this up because I, I I had a sense reading different interviews that you had given reading your poetry that that if po if, if poem writing were a religion, I guess, that's it just sounds wrong to even say that. You, you would you would be in that field. I, I can certainly see how poetry is a practice and that seems to be obviously it, it's it seems to be your primary practice, leading you to um well I mean in, in one sense, title of one of your books Words under the word. So it leads you to this deeper place.
2: My first full length book uh, way back when was called "Different Ways to Pray." And it examined um, you know different paths, different the different elements of my own background, people I had encountered. But also, I, I hope the central thread of that book was that that language itself, you know, with meditation, invocation, prayer, was in silence, respect for silence, and listening, that that was another way to pray.
1: Mm, perfect. And we are going to have to leave it there. Our guest today is Naomi Shihab Nye. An excerpt from her new book, Voices in the Air, Poetry for Listeners, can be found in the January-February issue of Spirituality Health magazine. Naomi, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations.
2: Thank you very much. I love talking with you and only wish we could get our little grandchildren together to share their passions.
1: That would be Fantastic.
2: I'm ready to get out the raisins tomorrow.
1: Support for this show comes from the world-famous annual International Yoga Festival in Rishikesh, India. Deepen your practice, explore your soul, and expand your consciousness with yogis from around the world. And do so in the lap of the Himalayas, the birthplace of yoga. Learn more at internationalyogafestival.org. Before we sign off, let me remind you that this year is the 20th anniversary of Spirituality and Health magazine. As part of our celebration, I'm leading an interspiritual tour of the Holy Land. This is part tour and part pilgrimage as we engage in contemplative practices linked to the various sites that we'll visit, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Baha'i. For more information, please visit us at spiritualityhealth.com slash Holy Land with Rami. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please log into spiritualityhealth.com to subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. While you're on iTunes or wherever you get this podcast, leave us a rating and a review. We can always learn how to do this show more effectively if we have input from those who care enough to listen. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator and executive producer is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show.